We start with sky-high gas prices, record highs at the pump again. A buck twenty-two a liter in Metro Vancouver. Are you kidding me? The highest on the continent. The highest gas taxes in North America. I've got Conservative MP Dan Albus standing by. Have a listen to this. This is Dan Albus going after the finance minister in the House of Commons, asking for relief from high gas prices. Listen to how this went down. Well, the prime, man, prime minister who said in Vancouver that gas prices are exact, or higher gas prices are exactly what he wants, set aside his inflationary policy, work with conservatives to give Canadians a break at the pumps. Will they do that? The honourable minister. Mr. Speaker, our government absolutely understands the affordability challenge that so many Canadians are facing. And that's why our budget includes a number of measures to help Canadians with affordability. Dental care. Doubling support provided through the first-time home buyer's tax credit. Introducing a multi-generational home renovation tax credit. And a $500 payment for people facing housing affordability challenges. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Okay, so Christian Freeland there, she feels your pain outlining some of the affordability measures from the government. Didn't hear any commitment there on gas prices. Let's check in with Dan Albus now, Conservative MP, West Kelowna. Dan, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for letting me be here, Mike. Oh, okay, you bet. So I thought it was an, a very interesting exchange you had in the House with the Finance Minister on this. Tell me exactly what you would like to see the government do here. Well, right now, we've seen gas prices go through the roof, and we know the war Ukraine and supply challenges in terms of world prices is escalating most of this. But the problem is, is that the government in its own budget is getting windfall profits. You know why? Because they're raising the carbon tax in those backstop provinces. They are also getting the GST on top of everything. So you have a tax on a tax. And what they're doing right now is they're getting all this revenue from those higher gas prices, and they're keeping it for their own budget, for their own spending priorities. And yet they are not thinking of all those commuters. They're not thinking of all the seniors on fixed income in rural areas that have to drive to medical appointments. And they're definitely not thinking about moms and dads uh, who have to get their kids off to school or those small businesses that have to pass on extra charges. So their inflationary policies, they're, they're, getting, they're reaping more revenue but they're keeping it for their own priorities. We would like to see them give a temporary reduction. Just take the 5% off of gasoline and diesel at the pumps so that people can get a break. Unfortunately, we put this idea forward before, and they just dismiss it. They are indifferent. They, they, only if you fit in their narrow little checklist of, of things that will help you will you get some relief. But really, it's mostly a smokescreen, Mike. They are taking money from Canadians, patting the government's books, and letting people choose between driving to work and putting food on the table. Okay, so uh, remove the 5% GST at the gas pump, and I'm glad you pointed out that tax on tax. People may not be aware of that, that there's a whole ton of other taxes that they pay at the gas pump every time they fill up in Metro Vancouver and elsewhere in BC. The GST is charged on all of it, right? Like the GST is charged on the tax, the tax on a tax, correct? Well, that's right. And in British Columbia, yeah, yeah. there's a provincial carbon tax. And so right. we obviously don't have uh, control over that. But again, that tax on the tax, reduce it on a temporary basis until we come back to more normal uh, rates uh, you know, for, for gas prices. And this way, 
small businesses right now that are just being, you know, pushed to the limits after all the COVID issues, all the flooding in BC, they need a break. And so do their customers. Speaking of conservative MP Dan Albas calling for a temporary cut in the GST on gas prices. Okay. I often hear the conservatives though, Dan, complaining about runaway spending, uncontrolled deficits, the debt soaring over a trillion, a trillion dollars for the first time. I mean, if you take the GST off of gas, how much is that going to cost the government in lost revenue? Doesn't that make the deficit and the debt even bigger? Well, again, over regular years, it's about $5 billion a year. But with this being, you know, we're seeing like 222 uh, in Vancouver mm-hmm. or on the island. Uh, so they are getting a big, a bigger cut of that because let's remember, remind ourselves, it's not just a tax from a tax. It's actually a compounding. So the more that the, the gas costs itself to purchase uh, and, then, and then all the other taxes on it, it multiplies on that, Mike. And so right now they're getting way more revenue. So we're just saying don't take as much revenue on a temporary basis. And then when we start to see a normalization in prices, you can go back and add the 5% what, again. What is, what is a normal? Wins. How do you define that? Like what is a normal price? When would the tax go back on? Well, this would translate in most regions of the country to about $0.08 cents a liter. So, so again, what they'd be doing is just lowering that for a period of time and then bring it back. In fact, in the motion, we just said we didn't even put a, a time limit on it because we don't know how long this situation in Ukraine or, or other situations are going to come up. But it gives the government a free hand to help out. Now, instead of actually looking at this and saying, look, we'll take this one back, we'll, 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 we'll try to work with you, they just said no. And then what happened? Okay. April 1st, carbon taxes right across the country went up. At yeah. the same time, we're switching over from winter gas to summer gas, so that goes up. And we're at 6.6% inflation in this country. And one of the things Statistics Canada said, Mike, one of the main drivers besides house prices and groceries is fuel. Because guess what? The fuel that it takes to ship something to your grocery store, that's going to create an inflationary spiral on those goods. So we're trying to actually alleviate the problem. Dan Albus, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Great. Good talking to you, Mike. All right, welcome back, and here we go now with the great debate. Should Donald Trump be allowed back on Twitter? Now, Elon Musk, of course, the world's richest human being, buying Twitter for $44 billion. He said this week he thought it was dumb to ban Trump from Twitter in the first place. He thinks that banning people from the platform should be the last thing Twitter should be doing. Here's what Musk had to say this week. Have a listen. Here's Elon Musk saying there shouldn't be a permanent ban. If if there are tweets that are wrong, they should and bad, those should be uh, uh, either deleted or made invisible, um, and a suspension, uh, a temporary suspension is appropriate, um, but not a permanent ban. Okay, he says he would let Trump back on Twitter. He says banning him in the first place was the wrong thing to do. Here's what he had to say. And this is the, the point that I'm trying to make, which is perhaps not getting across, is that, there, is that banning Trump from Twitter didn't end Trump's voice. It will amplify it among the right. And this is why it is morally wrong and flat out stupid. 
Okay, let's discuss now. We've got both sides of it for you. Ari Goldkind is a lawyer and political commentator. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. He says Trump should be allowed back on Twitter. Hi, Ari. Hi, Mike. Great to be on with you. Thanks a lot for coming on. Also on the line is Joe Roberts. Joe is a speaker, writer, columnist for The New Left on Substack. I'm very pleased to welcome Joe back as well. Hey, Joe. Always a pleasure, Mike. Okay, guys, thanks a lot for being here. Joe, let me go to you first. Trump was banned. Twitter said that he was inciting violence during the Capitol riots. Uh, he's, he was kicked off of Twitter. You think that ban should remain in place, correct? Well, absolutely, Mike. I mean, look, we have to look at what this thing is. And Twitter is, not, is a private company. Right? This is not the public commons. This is not a degradation of free speech. The United States Constitution protects free speech against the government, uh, and which is perfectly allowed. The guy still has a voice. He can say and do whatever he wishes. But it doesn't mean there are no consequences. And the consequences of seditious speech in this instance were that Twitter said he's banned from their platform, a right they have every decision to make. Okay, but Elon Musk has the right to let him back on, right? Well, he certainly does. I think it's the wrong yeah. decision. I, th I think it's the wrong decision because we have to look at what is the bigger picture about the degradation of our democratic institutions and around the American society. What does it mean to actually to empower this speech uh, and empower dangerous speech when it uh, leads to public distrust and the degradation of our moral fabric? All right, Ari Goldkind, your thoughts. There's nothing more degrading to democracy than somebody on the new left deciding who gets to speak. That's what actually degrades democracy more than more speech, much more speech, debate speech, arguing speech. The whole tenet of democracy upon which it falls like a house of cards as soon as the new left pulls out one of the cards is to say that only you get to speak. Only somebody popular gets to speak, let alone somebody who got 71 million votes, Mike, and you picked up on my uh, on your learned guest comment right away, which is if Twitter is a private company, which is yeah. a completely facile, completely facile argument, and I can knock that down in two seconds in a moment, you pointed out the logical fallacy of your respected guest position, which is if Twitter as a private company, because it's run by morons and millennial uh, Zoomer Gen X morons who decide what the political culture is, then your guest has to acknowledge that new ownership, should they see fit, has every right to make a different decision. Now, the private government argument could be knocked down in two seconds, and I think your guest is completely smart enough to know that there's ample Supreme Court case law in the United States that says the government cannot direct, influence, or encourage a private company to do something the government itself cannot do. Okay. Okay. I don't think that it's in much dispute that if Elon Musk buys Twitter, he can let Trump back on. I don't think anyone is saying that he, he's not allowed to let him, let him back on if he wants. I guess the question is, should Trump be allowed to tweet again? So, Joe Roberts, if we go back to the original reason why Trump was kicked off the platform in the first place, Twitter said effectively he was inciting violence. He called the people who stormed the U.S. Capitol uh, patriots. Uh, why, do, why do you think he he should be silenced. Do you think he was inciting violence? Is that your interpretation of it? Well, look, I think we have to look back at this and say what was actually happening on the day. Just because we can do something doesn't mean we should, right? I mean, there's lots yeah. of cases in everyday life where we can do lots of things. The outcome may not be uh, good for society or good for ourselves. And this is one of those cases. I mean, we look at the degradation of democracy over the, the, the term of, uh, that Trump served as president. It is clear 
it's clear it's the first time in U.S. history that there was ever a question about a peaceful transition of power. And why? It was coming from the president of the United States of America. It's an insane place for it to be coming from. He's calling these people patriots. He's championing them. He said, he's, I'm going to go down to the Capitol with you. I mean, this kind of speech is just insane. It's, it's not helpful to our systems. And it actually destroys what makes the United States a beacon of democracy around the world. It calls into question, does the the job that our enemies are trying to do with their intelligence services themselves. And so, you know, can we do it? Sure, we can. But should we? Absolutely not. Ari, what do you say to that? I just couldn't disagree with it more. It's like night and day. I mean, the greatest threat to democracy is not Donald Trump tweeting about a wall, about January 6th, about an open border, about crime in our cities. What it does, and Elon Musk made this point much more brilliantly than me. I mean, his brilliance knows no bounds, and we don't have that clip handy. But he talked about when somebody on the new left, and I use that term specifically, says that they get to decide what the public square is. They get to decide what's dangerous. Not 70 million people who want to have a voice. All you do, and if you're really worried about democracy and the rise of far-right extremism, which is not a concern I have (laughs) at, at all, I don't believe that to be the case. There's no treason prosecutions out of January 6th. There's no sedition prosecutions out of January 6th. Certainly none that will be successful, but they don't exist. The greatest danger you do is you take 71 million voters. And I'm not saying they all voted for Trump. They probably voted that they know Biden is a mask and a shell of his former self, or they don't like the squad or the far left politics. You drive them to moronic places like true social. You drive them into moronic, extreme corners of YouTube and Rumble and Gab. And if you really want to talk about what's the safest thing for democracy, if your guest is correct, and let's say some of your audience, Mike, thinks he is. If your guest is correct, let him debate his ideas of why he's correct, why he's morally superior, why democracy is in danger. That's how you increase the safety and efficacy of a democracy, not by cutting off dozens, uh, tens of millions of people. Okay, let's listen to another comment here from Elon Musk this week, and and I believe he makes a similar point that you just made, Ari, that he says, look, if you want to, Trump could be amplified, his voice could be amplified by kicking him off of Twitter, which sounds Sounds counterintuitive, but he's moved to his own social media platform called Truth Social, as Ari mentioned. And Musk says, look, it's better having Trump and everyone else debating in one public square, not everyone going off into their own silos to uh, to make their point. So here is Musk on that point. Have a listen. And did not ultimately result in Donald Trump not having a voice. He is now going to be on Truth Social, um, as will uh, a large part of the sort of the, the right in the, in the United States. Um, and so I think this could end up being, frankly, worse than having a, sing, you know, a single forum where everyone can debate. Okay, Joe Roberts, what do you think of that argument that letting, kicking Trump off actually makes it worse than just letting him have his say in one place with everyone else on the same platform? Your thoughts? I mean, I think that's nonsensical. I mean, he had 89 million followers on Twitter. He was literally setting the news cycle based on what he was tweeting. And let's remember that over 30,000 of his tweets were either mistruths or flat out lies during his time on Twitter as, a, as the president of the United States. So he's not telling the truth. And I think we have to think about 
what one thing we can all agree on is the truth is what's important, right? You can't lie. You can't mislead people into to push your political agenda. It's wrong. And that's what is the beginning of the degradation of democracy that we're talking about. You know, we have to think about what do we want these systems to be? Parlor, all of these systems, they're failed. He, you know, he could be there. He's not going to make the impact that he's making. It's like writing a piece in the New York Times or writing a piece in the Kalamazoo Journal. One is going to get a lot more readership than the other. And okay. that's the same case here. Back to the show. Should Donald Trump be allowed back on Twitter? Elon Musk says he should. Musk is buying Twitter for $44 billion. Got both sides of it for you. Ari Goldkind says let Trump tweet again. Joe Roberts says keep Trump banned. Lots of calls. Devin in Vancouver. Hi, Devin. Go ahead. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. The Ayatollahs, they're, they're allowed to tweet, right? You have the government of North Korea tweeting. You have Professor Emmett McFarlane, University of Waterloo, who stated, and I quote, burn it all down when he was talking about Supreme Court nominations. Why aren't they banned? Ari, Ari Goldkind, your thoughts? Your guest makes a great point, and he's right. Putin's on Twitter. The Taliban is on Twitter. The most anti-Semitic people on the planet are on Twitter calling for the death and destruction of Jews. Nobody on the far left complains about that. Now, here's the point prior to the break. Your guest says he gets to decide what the truth is. I think I know what the truth is, Mike. You've had me on enough times where I believe in my own position. But I don't get to say what's truthful. There's an argument as to what the truth is, and then a jury of the Mike Smith show peers decides. This is the danger of the left. Your caller makes that point quite clear. The left takes the view that they own the market, Mike, on what the truth is. That is a complete insult to democracy. So, remember, so are you saying? So are you saying, Ari? Then Trump should be allowed to say whatever he wants, no restrictions. One million percent. I actually thought Elon Musk hedged his position the other day, and here's why I say that. Your guest and his position, not personal to him, he actually got his point. I think Trump was a buffoon three quarters of the time, and through four years of his presidency. By the way, there's no presidency that's ever worse than Trump's. If you take Biden. Biden makes the Trump presidency look positively Reagan or Obama-esque. If you take your guest's point to its logical conclusion, having Trump saying whatever he want with his stupid 5 a.m. toilet tweeting fingers got Joe Biden 81 million votes. That's how the democratic process is actually supposed to to work. People didn't like Mike. People didn't like what Trump said for four years because he was able to say it and there was a competition for ideas, and my my your fellow guest side won. That's okay, Joe, how it's supposed to work. Joe Roberts, your response. I mean, look, I think we have to make a decision here. We have to decide, do we want Twitter to be a place that's just full of, you know, as, as your guest says, anti-Semites and Russia apologists and liars of the worst kind, state actors who are putting forward misinformation, which is what we've seen, which actually led to the election of Donald Trump and the degradation of democracy across the world and the destruction of liberal democracy in Europe. Do we want that to be what Twitter is? I think, like I said, you can do it doesn't mean you should. We have serious decisions to make about what we look like as a society moving forward. Those are decisions we have to make collectively and not based on the whims of one person. Okay, squeeze a couple of calls in. Corey on the line in Surrey. Hi, Corey, go ahead. Well, I was kind of uh, going to say similar stuff with the last uh, caller, but the other thing is, too, is like, 
the left wants to suppress the truth, like just like the Hunter, Hunter Biden uh, laptop. That was suppressed. Uh, New York uh, Post was shut down because they didn't want the truth out because they knew that that wouldn't be good for Joe Biden. Yet now we all know it turned out to be the truth. It is a real laptop and the things that happened mm-hmm. in there. So that's the reason and that is some of the challenges why you cannot be shutting down free speech. Free speech is, is when all people, whether you like what they have to say, are allowed to speak. Right. Okay. And we have a choice to make okay. decisions from there. So thank, thank you, Corey. Let's squeeze another call in. Terry in New West. Hi, Terry. Go ahead. How are you guys doing? Uh, my Good. father was an American, so I follow these American politics. Um, I hate the Republican Party, to be honest. I can't stand them. They're hypocrites, most of them. Uh, I can't stand Nixon still and Agnew, but you know, free speech. Um, I'd say let him on. Um, let him make a fool of himself. Um, you know, maybe he won't get the next nomination, hopefully so, and that'll work out. Uh, I still want his taxes checked out in New York and maybe serve some time in prison for evading taxes. Okay, Joe Roberts, caller says, let Trump speak and let him, let him hang himself on Twitter. Your thoughts? Well, I've heard this argument quite a bit, and I think there's some, there is some truth to it. He will do that. He will make a fool of himself. But I think we're having the wrong conversation in general here. The conversation is if democracy worked in the United States, as it is intended, we'd be having a, a, a court trial right now about if this this guy, the past president of the United States, was seditious or not, and he'd be serving time in prison for undermining American democracy. That's not what's happening. Because of Republican obstruction of justice in the United States, we're having a conversation about if the guy should be able to tweet nonsense on Twitter. It just, it's, it's, a, mm. it's a world that doesn't make much sense. Okay. Uh, Ari, you get the last word here. We just got a minute left. Go ahead, please. I didn't understand any of that, quite frankly. That made no sense to me that Trump would be on trial. How about putting the Biden-Harris administration on trial for inflation, gas prices, fuel, groceries, the destruction of honesty, the destruction of truth, the censoring of your enemies, the shutting down of anything that is counter to their position? And here's the... I want to go back to your caller, Mike, for 30 seconds, out of respect for your caller. He mentions Hunter Biden, which has become this smokescreen or flag that people don't understand the significance of the deletion of that story. The importance of that story, not as January 6th, which is the biggest non-story in history, it's that there was a story censoring the fact that the son of the candidate to be president was in bed with Ukraine taking dirty and laundered money, and the question was, was any of that money being funneled to as he then was Joe Biden? That's something that a number of voters should have known about. And for Twitter and Jack Dorsey to come out and say, now, now, it should never have been taken off our platform. That tells you that, Houston, we have a problem. All right. Welcome back to the show. Here we go now with the great Broadway plan debate. What a red hot issue this is in Vancouver right now. The plan to build high rise towers. Along the new Broadway subway line, 50,000 new residents expected to move into these neighborhoods. We're talking Mount Pleasant, Fairview, Kitsilano, and we're talking high-rise towers, 40 stories high. Supporters say this will bring desperately needed new housing to the city. Opponents say it will turn Vancouver into a concrete canyon rip the heart out of these neighborhoods. All right, let's discuss it now. What a great panel we've got for you, both sides of it. Kit Sauter from the city, Sauter, Kit Sauter from the city of Vancouver Renters Advisory Committee. He supports the planning, Kit. Hi there, Mike, how are you? 
I'm, go- I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on. Also on the line is Brian Palmquist. Brian is a Vancouver-based architect. He opposes the plan. Brian, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Hey, Brian, let me go to you first. Why do you support this plan? Why do you think, or, or, or why do you, why are you opposed to the plan? Why do you think it's bad? Well, there, there are a number of things that are a problem with it, but I'll just, I'll just focus on three. Um, it's going to destroy the city's largest inventory of, of affordable rental housing. It's going to destroy the neighborhoods that it is imposed on. And it's, being, it's doing this without any consideration of adding any additional park space or school space or community facility space for the not 50,000, but actually 140,000 people that the plan actually um, anticipates. Wow. Okay, let me go to Kit. Kit, your thoughts. Yeah, so, I mean, the reason that I support the plan is because Vancouver's got a deficit of 86,000 housing units uh, at last inventory. And just to keep up with the gap, we would need 14,400 new units built every single year going forward. We're not even at half that right now. Uh, The Broadway corridor has the second largest amount of jobs uh, per square kilometer after the downtown core anywhere in British Columbia and, quite frankly, in all of Western Canada. And uh, they're good jobs. They're high-paying jobs. They're high-value jobs. They're at the VGH campus, they're at the tech district at the bottom of Mount Pleasant, and uh, they're with planners and architects and engineers, just like Brian. And so if those aren't the kind of people that we want in our city, I don't know what the future of the city should be. Okay, Kit, what do you say to Brian's argument that there's a lot of existing affordable rental down in this area that would be destroyed, in his word, if we tear them down and put up high-rises instead? Your thoughts? So Brian's absolutely right that there is a lot of affordable rental. That's 100% correct. The reason that it's affordable is because it was built in the 1950s and the 1960s. So we're naturally getting to the end of life for those buildings and units. And the reality is that they're going to be torn down to the studs or bulldozed in the next 10 to 15 years anyway. The Broadway plan Mm. does the hard work to bridge the divide between what we have today and where we need to go over the next 30 years to make sure that folks who live in those residences who are paying, in some instances, $1,000, $1,200, $1,400 for a bedroom or two-bedroom unit, which is less than half of what I pay for a two-bedroom and den down on Kingsway, so yeah. that they can move out of that apartment and move into another apartment in the same neighborhood instead of getting thrown out of the city. The other thing, Mike, is that this plan has, and it was released yesterday afternoon, inclusion in it under bylaw protections. And staff have put forward a further proposal to even deepen that so that they'd be the strongest rental protections for right of return anywhere in North America. And there's a plan for two-thirds of all proposed housing to be purpose-built, affordable rental, or non-market housing in the plan, which means we get twenty okay. to 30,000 units. Okay, Brian Palmquist, what do you say to that? Well, I, I, I say that the renter protections are a great idea. Um, and I support them. Um, they work in, in uh, they're beginning to work in places like Burnaby that brought them in three and a half years ago when the last uh, uh, council election occurred. So um, I think that what we're seeing is a note of desperation on the part of Vancouver City Council um, because they brought in this plan. They only brought in the, a visible version in March for, for consultation. They've now produced a 493-page version of it yesterday, uh, and they're expecting mm. council to approve it uh, next week. Now, um, uh, it may have added some provisions, which are just pie in the sky. Wouldn't it be nice if 
sort of suggestions. But what I'm worried about with it is that it's actually worse than the original plan from March. More towers, um, higher, uh, etc. But it doesn't need to be that way. So I, I mentioned that the plan, as as drawn, as written, will actually accommodate two and a half times as many people as the vision, and that's all it is, of city staff. So if you want to get 50,000 people, you can actually do the whole thing in four to six story development in the same mm. locations and a lot more gently. You can do it assembling three or four lots at a time instead of a half a block or a whole block. Um, you know, we worked all these things out because okay. we were scratching our heads when we saw the plan and thinking, it, it can't mean this. Um, hey, so Bri- I, hey, Brian, I, Brian, does. let me ask. Let me ask you this, Brian. We're talking about some historic neighborhoods in our city, Mount Pleasant, Kitsilano. When you say that these neighborhoods could be destroyed by these high-rises, what do you mean? I mean, this is a big city. Of course, we've got high-rises. Every big city has them, right? Or most of them do. How would how would these neighborhoods be destroyed? Well, in, in, in a couple of ways. Um, uh, so Kitsilano has a number of... 10, 12, maybe even 13-story high-rises in it uh, already. Um, this plan uh, starts at 20 stories and goes up from there. So, uh, And it basically says to a community like Kitts, so I'm talking about from First Avenue to Broadway for the Kitts community and from Vine to Burrard for the Kitts community. In that entire swath, the plan says that, that we can build two, two 20-story towers bigger on Broadway itself, but let's just go with the 20s. Um, And we can do that even where we already have a high-rise on a block. We can add two more. So um, we're we're talking about a huge number of very tall buildings. If you want to know what 20 stories is, when you come off the Burrard Bridge going downtown, the very first building on your left is called Sea Star. That's 20 stories. Uh, And if you think that is short and doesn't cast shadows, then then go, go for it. But I'm so Mike, Mike, I'd just like to respond to Brian on this. Yeah, go, yeah, go ahead, kid. Uh, the, the thing here is, like, and Brian, I want to thank you for all the work that you and, and your, your friends have done uh, digging through the data on this, because it's, it's really helped inform some of the discussions that I've had. But when you talk about 485 blocks being upzoned, right, and I want to point to you having to highlight what a 20-story building is. The average person with an untrained eye cannot tell the difference between a 14 and a 34-story building once they look up. They just know it's tall. So first off, the impacts on 16 to 36 stories, negligible. Because once you're building above 12 stories, you're building towers. I agree with you. But when you talk about building 20 and 40 story towers along the Broadway corridor, we're talking about less than 85 of those 485 blocks being zoned for density. What we're talking about in the rest of the plan, I would argue, isn't even going far enough. More than a quarter of the plan still protects single-family zone neighborhoods so that they can't build above three and a half stories of height. And so what we need to do is, you and I agree on this, we need to make sure that the city moves forward with a plan for mid-rise, four to six stories, where people can afford to live, work, and play within 15 minutes of everything they need in their life. Okay, okay, Brian, real quick response, and we'll fit a break in here and take some calls. Go ahead. So there's no single-family home zoning left in the city anywhere. Uh, The plan, the Broadway plan contemplates nothing below six stories anywhere, and most of that is where it's too far away to, to walk to, apparently, the, the, the SkyTrain station. So this is not a uh, let's keep Kits the way it is, let's keep Mount Pleasant the way it is. This is um, 
six stories in the back back row and mostly 20 stories in all the places that people right now have four-story wood frame apartment buildings, condos, you name it. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the controversial Broadway plan along the Broadway corridor, high-rise towers. We've got both sides of it for you today. Kit Sauter, he supports the plan. Brian Palmquist is against it. Let's go right to your phone calls. Joe in Vancouver. Hi, Joe, go ahead. Yeah, I love the show, Mike. I just wanted to point out, I always, I'm astounded whenever they say there's going to be some new buildings, they're going to be bigger, they're going to be taller. Everyone freaks out as if they're surprised. You know, you live in a city. If you don't want that in your skyline, then you might want to consider moving out of town. But I don't know. I live in Collingwood. There are some high-rises there, and I think they actually kind of add something to the skyline, to the, to the panorama. So I just I don't get it. You know, you live in a city. There's going to be buildings. There's going to be new, bigger ones all the time. What's the problem? Okay. Brian Palmquist, how do you respond to that? Well, th- thank you for your, your comments. Um, my response would be, and I'm a bit familiar with the Collingwood area, take that and multiply it by 50, and, and you're talking the uh, Broadway plan. Take, take uh, two of the higher high-rises in, in Collingwood on every block, and you're talking the Broadway plan. But what's more important than that is you don't need to do that. Um, it's the most expensive way to build. It's the most unsustainable way to build, um, and you can do this. You can do the density that the plan actually says it wants, as opposed to what it's drawn. You can do the density in uh, four to six-story wood frame buildings, which are far more sustainable to build and to operate. So there's no need for the towers. Um, it's really the, the, the short answer. Nothing okay. to do with the view. So Mike, here's 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 where that needs to be pivoted a little bit. So Brian and I, again, agree on this. I'm a huge fan of mass timber. Uh, we need to transition the forestry sector in British Columbia to make sure that we have good jobs in mills and at AutoCAD and at design and architecture firms, like the one Brian worked in for decades. And the thing is that on the Broadway corridor itself, when that Broadway line subway goes in, it will have the capacity to remove the equivalent of 12,200 vehicles worth of emissions per year, every single day. And what we need to do is we need to make a choice as a city of how we're going to continue to pay for it, how to pay for the amenities, how to pay for the daycares, how to pay for schools and community centers and senior centers. And so on top of those subway stations, we should be building to height. I will continue to champion that we should actually be building to 60 stories above those rapid transit stations because that's where the density is needed. But Brian and I 100% agree that the whole city should be looking at walkable neighborhoods with sustainable construction that faces the climate crisis and does everything we can to get people close to the one out of every four jobs that currently sits in the downtown core in the Broadway corridor. Okay, let's go to Helen on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Helen, go ahead. Hi. um, Well, I'm someone who lives in an apartment. I grew up in the Lower Mainland. I had to take a 2.5-hour commute each way just to go to school at UBC. So I know what it's like when you don't have, like, the options to live in the city and having to commute in for work, for school, for whatever it is. And I think this plan is great because it allows people to be closer to the things that they need to do on a day-to-day basis. 
And I moved into the city. I lived in a tower in Fairview. I lived in a walk-up in Fairview as well. And now, as a young professional, I live in a high-rise. I walk and I bike and I transit everywhere in Olympic Village. There's six stories. There's 12 stories. There's like 20-plus story buildings. And it's a great neighborhood. And we can do all the things that we want because we have the density and we have all the amenities close by. And I think that's what's so great about this plan is that there's it allows for the possibility of various forms from now far into the future so that we have options to get people out of cars, to get people walking, to get people close to what they need to do in their lives day to day. Okay, Helen, thank you for that. Brian, what do you say to her? Uh, thanks for your comments, Helen. Um, what I would say is is this, and I'm very familiar with Olympic Village. Um, uh, think about when you go for a walk uh, near where you live, when you go down on the seawall, when you uh, you walk around uh, Creek, there's there's park there. There's no school, which is interesting because that's one of the big things that is not provided for either in Olympic Village or anywhere in the Broadway plan. Um, but there is at least green space, uh, and there's a lovely community center down there. So the Broadway plan doesn't provide for new community facilities. It doesn't provide for new parks. It doesn't provide for new schools. So I, I think that, and, and, and the fact that you're a young professional, great. Um, you're probably not doing the I'm worried about where my kids are going to go to school thing yet, but thousands of people mm. are. Um, and, well, and, Brian, I, I okay, am. Let me, go, go ahead, Kit. Go my, ahead. My daughter's, my daughter's two years old, so I want to key off two things that Helen said. One, the Broadway subway, once it's extended to UBC, which it absolutely should be, will finally connect the largest urban research university in Western Canada to the largest financial district after Toronto and Montreal. Okay. We are the only major urban center in North America that does not have a rapid transit line from its school of commerce to its financial district. That is a net loss for this city. Every business, every startup, every opportunity that we want to take to leverage clean tech, affordability, new science, tackling a plague like the pandemic over the last two and a half years gets short-circuited because we can't get the young people with bright ideas from the place where they're doing their research to where the people who have money and want to invest it into their what do you are. hey uh, all night yeah yeah kit hey kit yeah go old. ahead yeah we need to be able to walk and yeah. we live in a building like the ones that are being proposed in about a third of the broadway plan six-story market purpose-based rental and we, after five years, Mike, finally found a place with two bedrooms. For the first year and a half that my daughter was alive, my wife and I slept on the floor of our living room so that our baby could learn to sleep through the night in a room of her own. We need these units yesterday, Mike. We have to build spaces for UBC-educated professionals, for artists, for engineers, for entertainers, for okay. immigrants who want to put down roads and build a better Canada. 